Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have another invention-themed episode for you. We're going to be talking about something that might initially seem frightfully dull, or at least very commonplace, and that is the odometer. I mentioned this to Rachel earlier, and she was like, oh, yes, the uh, device that measures odors. (laughs) Yes, or odos. If you were to read the word wrong, you might think it says odometer. Um, But it's, yes, the odometer. So you, everyone out there, you probably know this device best is the little counter in your vehicle that records how far you've driven. And I think we tend to think of this invention mostly as a self-centered device. It tells us how far we've driven on our trip, how many miles or kilometers we've racked up on our vehicle. But, uh, you know, there's another way of looking at the odometer, and this, certainly this is something that plays into... Uh, in, into the history of the invention and, and also our attempts to understand its place in the ancient world is that an odometer can also be a method of determining distances on given routes. It's something that turns a vehicle into a tool for measurement. Right. So it's uh, it gives you information that would be useful to other people because, I mean, in, in the ancient world, you don't have Google Maps or anything. You might know that there are two cities and you might know that you get from one of them to the other by following the road to the west, but you might not know how long it's going to take you 
to get from one to the other. So it would be very useful if you actually had some standard distance measurements that would allow you to estimate the length of the journey and to know how much you need to pack for the journey and so forth. Yeah, we've talked before about the uh, some of the, the, the important uh, things that make up an empire, make an empire or a kingdom function. And there are things like standardized measurements, of course, and standardized currency. Uh, but another thing that, that would be useful is indeed, like you say, to know how long it takes to get from one place to another. Uh, what is the distance from one place uh, to another, from border to border, from port to capital, from frontier to fort, and so forth. And this is the kind of thing that would, of course, be important for warfare, but also for trade and just general management of a g- given territory. So on one hand, you can imagine the situation and you can and you can think about what an odometer is and knowing that an odometer has uh, some of its history in the ancient world, you might think, well, this is the this is the route we take to get to the invention. This is the necessity uh, that is the mother of this invention. But this doesn't necessarily seem to be the case, as we'll discuss as we look at uh, at its history, both in the East and in the West. Now, I think it's worth thinking at least just a little bit about maps and cartography here because it's easy for for the mind to go there. Like, I need to know the exact distance between X and Y uh, because I want an accurate map, right? Uh, the two kind of go hand in hand when we think about maps today. Like, even if I'm looking through a Dungeons and Dragons book, uh, I have a map of some sort of fantastic region, and then I have a little indicator to tell me exactly how how many miles an inch is or something to that effect. Oh, once you get into D&D, though, I feel like it's often very loosey-goosey about travel distances. Oh, yeah. And... um I and it, as a when I am dungeon mastering, I I am also I hate it when there's like a really specific question about distances. Like, well, is it a, is it one mile or two miles? It's like, I don't know. It just it's however long it takes to get there. But yeah. at any well, my experience is you want to you want to take a, a cue from the DM, basically like, is this a journey where things will happen on the journey, or a journey where we will just magically get, arrive at the destination? Yes. <laughs> sometimes the magic is in the journey, uh, but sometimes it most definitely is not. So, uh, th- thinking about the, this the situation, about figuring, knowing what the distances are between uh, one place and the, and the other, and thinking about the role of maps in the ancient world, uh, I turned to, to one of my, my favorite uh, go-to texts for a lot of this sort of thing, Brian Fagan's The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. And there's a, there are so, several different chapters in there that deal with measures and maps. Uh, and uh, Fagan and his co-authors point out, I think, a few important things about ancient maps that we might want to uh, have in our head as we proceed. Uh, so mm. first of all, they point out the Chinese maps of old were more about landscape features. So the journey from X to Y is more about the details of the landscape and the markers that are passed on the way. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, navigating by landmarks. Yeah, and so the maps would reflect that. Another thing they point out is that while local maps uh, in the ancient world were were one thing, as were specialized maps, broader maps of the world or region were not really part of the overall ancient approach to maps. There were no regular standards of map making, and there were no general purpose maps. And uh, I, this is one quote uh, from the book that I thought was rather telling. Quote, between them, rulers, generals, sailors, and traders evidently all but ignored the practical assistance that maps could afford them. Hmm, that's surprising. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to look back and, and think about what benefits this broader approach to maps, general purpose maps, et cetera, uh, could have afforded them. 
So I think all that's worth keeping in mind as we proceed here. None of this is to say peoples during these eras were not concerned with precise distances, but the relationship with exact maps wasn't quite the same as what we have now. Now, another way of thinking about what came before is that there certainly were ways of measuring long distances before the invention of the mechanical odometer, though there is some question about the relative accuracy of early mechanical methods versus pre-mechanical methods. And one case study here that I think we should look at, it's a very interesting puzzle that emerges if you look at a geography chapter of the natural history by by our old friend Pliny the Elder, uh, here I'll be referring to the uh, Bostock and Riley translation. For those not familiar, Pliny the Elder was a first century Roman military commander and author, and the natural history is an early attempt at creating a sort of world encyclopedia. So Pliny covers everything from mining and metallurgy to botany and zoology, cooking, politics. It's just it's just a book of everything. Mm. And in book six of the natural history, Pliny sets out to describe, quote, an account of countries, nations, seas, towns, havens, mountains, rivers, distances, and peoples who now exist or formerly existed. Uh, very good <laughs> chapter heading there. Uh, one of the chapters within this volume, chapter 21, is on the nations of India, as known to Pliny at the time. Again, this is the first century CE. So Pliny says that India is a vast country with over a hundred kingdoms, dozens of rivers, uncountable mountains, but he will undertake to describe some of it by following the path of Alexander the Great, who led a conquering army to India about 400 years earlier. So Pliny writes, quote, However, that we may come to a better understanding relative to the description of these regions, we will follow the track of Alexander the Great. Diognetus and Biton, whose duty it was to ascertain the distances and length of his expeditions, have written that from the Caspian Gates to Hecatompylon, the city of the Parthians, the distance is the number of miles which we have already stated. And he mentioned a number earlier. And then he goes on, and that uh, from thence to Alexandria of the Arii, which city was founded by the same king, the distance is 575 miles. And from thence to uh, Prophthasia, the city of the Dragni, 199 miles. And from here, he just goes on and on, listing distances. Uh, it's uh, this many miles to the next city and this many miles to the next city. Uh, so he, he attributes all of these numbers, all of these distances in miles that he comes up with for this path uh, leading into India to these two figures, Diognetus and Biton. Who were these guys? Well, they were known as bimatists, coming from the Greek word meaning step or pace. Uh, I looked up bimatists in the Oxford Handbook of Classics. And the entry does identify them as the, the surveyors, essentially, of, of Alexander the Great, uh, and names a few other ones in addition to the two I already mentioned, uh, Biton and Diognetus. It also names uh, Philonides of Crete, who, uh, it says in a side note, was a celebrated distance runner. And the entry also notes that the uh, the two figures who worked for Alexander, Biton and Diognetus, uh, as well as some others, quote, had literary aspirations. Their measurements of key distances in the empire comprised an archive, later controlled by Seleucus I. Individual bimatists published their observations in monographs termed stathmoi, or stages. 
which combined precise calculations of distance with more exotic reports of the flora, fauna, and customs of the empire. The latter tended to the outrageous, but the measurements were of lasting value and provided Eratosthenes with the framework for his geography of Asia. Eratosthenes, you might recall, was an early figure, a a Greek philosopher who, uh, with pretty startling accuracy, calculated the actual uh, size of the sphere of the earth. And he did that just using uh, knowledge of the distances between uh, locations of different latitudes and then the use of uh, the angles of sundials, basically. Yeah. So how did the Bematists actually measure distances in the time of Alexander the Great? Well, I've seen some disagreement on this. Some sources imply that they simply counted paces, so you'd walk and count how many steps you took, while others suggest that they used some kind of mechanical device. One of the weird things is that, as far as we can tell, most of the distances recorded by Bimatists, such as Byton and Diognetus, uh, as well as others from the ancient world, are surprisingly accurate. Uh, on this point, I want to quote a book I was looking at by a an American historian named Donald W. Ingalls. The book is called Alexander the Great and the Logistics of the Macedonian Army from the University of California Press in 1978. And explaining a table in his book of uh, the Bimatists' different uh, estimates of the distances between cities on this route, Ingalls writes, quote, The overall accuracy of the Bimatist measurements should be apparent. The minor discrepancies of distance, parentheses, only 1.3% from Herat to Begram, can be adequately explained by slight changes in the tracks of roads during the last 2300 years. The accuracy of the measurements implies that the Bimatists used a sophisticated mechanical device for measuring distances, undoubtedly an odometer, such as described by Heron of Alexandria. So there's a clue. Uh, Ingalls here says, look, the distance is given by these these uh, people who worked for Alexander the Great and other Bimatists of the era, they are just too accurate. They are too good to be the result of trying to count your steps and estimate from that. They have to be using some kind of machine that we don't know about. And one good candidate is a machine like the one described later by Heron of Alexandria. Now, this idea that they may have simply been walking, uh, on one hand, I can't help but but think of the Monty Python ministry of silly walks and imagine like a specific, ridiculous, but regular gait that they're using. And, and if they were super focused on their steps and counting their steps, maybe that would explain why their, their reports of uh, flora and fauna are so outrageous. They're like, <laughs> yeah. well, it was, it was, it was 3,876 steps. And to the left, there may have been a dragon. I'm not sure. I was just really focused on these steps and getting the step count right. I mean, descriptions of local flora, fauna, and peoples of the world uh, are notably hilarious throughout all kinds of ancient texts, oh, in, including sure. Pliny himself. Mm -hmm. uh, he loves to talk about people who had like eyes in their stomachs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I keep hoping one day I'll come across a passage in Pliny where he, he mentions people who have crab claws. I, I haven't found that yet. <laughs> Ooh, I have to have to look into that. I mean, because you mentioned it's it's of course not just Pliny and his writings and travelers that he's sourcing, and we we've discussed uh, similar things in Chinese traditions as well. So there have to be some crab clawed individuals out there somewhere. 
But okay, sorry, uh, to Hero or Huron of Alexandria. Multiple sources I found point to a device described by this first century mathematician and inventor, sometimes known as Hero, sometimes known as Huron, but he was from Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, as you can tell by the name. Uh, a lot of inventions are attributed to Hero, though some of the most famous ones probably predated him, and he just described them in lectures and writings, and then later that gets sort of... Um, mistaken for him having actually invented the thing in the first place. In the latter category, one example, uh, in fact, one of the most famous devices associated with Hero is the Iala pile, which is a type of early steam engine converting the power of steam into rotational energy. Basically, it works by you've got a big cauldron that's full of water, and then you put a fire underneath it, and then that cauldron is connected by pipes to a sphere that can rotate around the pipes. And then the sphere has two little exhaust uh, nozzles that allow steam to escape as the water boils and, and turns into steam and expands. But the way the nozzles are oriented, they're oriented uh, in the same rotational direction. So as the as it gets hotter and hotter in the cauldron and the, the steam pressure builds up, it spins the sphere faster and faster. Yeah, there are a lot of images of this, uh, as I recall. I remember seeing a cool woodcut of this, I think, at one point. Um, but it, it has the look of, you know, of, of a novelty, uh, of, of, uh, of a device that's, that's illustrating the principle here, but, but of course not putting it to the sort of work that later uh, steam engines would, for sure. Yes, and though the Eolopile is often associated with uh, with Hero, I think this is something that he, he very likely did not actually invent. It was just something he described that already existed. Mm. Um, but we have talked about other machines uh, possibly invented by Hero in previous episodes. One that I remember is that Hero of Alexandria is, in, uh, is credited with inventing the first vending machine, which strangely was also a piece of religious technology. It was a machine designed to dole out limited portions of sacred water within Egyptian temples when a devotee would insert the right amount of coinage. So I think you'd put a five drachma or five drachma piece in through a coin slot. And then that would operate a weighted lever that would dispense a certain amount of holy water. And then once a certain amount of water had gone out, the machine would tip over and then it would close the valve and stop dispensing. Though even in this case, I, I read that it's actually possible Hero was uh, simply describing a device that had already been invented by Tisibius of Alexandria in the third century BCE. So as with a lot of ancient inventions, it's often hard to tell if somebody actually invented something or if they're just talking about something that already existed. Right. Anyway, I found multiple references to Hero either inventing or describing an odometer, as evidenced by a passage he wrote in a minor work called the Dioptera, which uh, I wanted to find the full text for, but if it has been translated into English, I was unable to find it. Uh, so I, I don't know if that even exists in English. But regarding this this machine he describes in the Dioptera, again, Hero is first century CE, uh, a, a couple of caveats. One is that Hero was definitely not the first known author to describe an odometer in Greek in the Greek and Latin corpus. The Roman engineer Vitruvius, who lived in the first century BCE, so a century before Hero, 
also describes an odometer, uh, uh, though in a slightly different way. I'll get into the differences in a minute. But even Vitruvius does not claim to have invented the device out of whole cloth. And then there's a second caveat, which is that, uh, remember again, Engels making the comment that Alexander the Great's bimatists must have had a device like Hero's. The problem here is that Hero of Alexandria and Vitruvius both lived long after the conquest of Alexander the Great. So if it's true, as Engels suggests, that these bimatists used a mechanical odometer similar to the one described by these uh, engineers and authors, they would have been using some kind of earlier device similar to Hero's or Vitruvius's, not something that Hero or Vitruvius invented. Now, an interesting source I found on, uh, on on these two device descriptions is a book called Technical Ekphrasis in Greek and Roman Science and Literature, The Written Machine Between Alexandria and Rome. This is by an author named Courtney Roby from Cambridge University Press 2016. Courtney Roby is a professor of classics at Cornell. And in this book, this is in the context of explaining patterns of composition in Greek and Roman technical books, uh, how in different times and cultures, there were different standards and uses for technical explanation of machinery. Hero and Vitruvius both wrote books describing odometers. I mentioned heroes, but the, uh, the earlier mentioned by Vitruvius comes in a book called On Architecture. And according to Roby, uh, Vitruvius himself acknowledges that the odometer is, quote, part of a technological tradition handed down from predecessors. Some authors have suggested that might mean from Archimedes, but I'm not aware of what, what evidence there would be for this. So uh, I, I'm not sure how strong that suggestion is. Maybe it's just kind of like, oh, Archimedes, he invented stuff. Maybe it was him. Yeah, I think some, sometimes we see in different traditions, we have these, these noted inventors, noted uh, minds, and they kind of become uh, mythic magnets for yeah. uh, various ideas and inventions. Uh, but there, there might be some good reasons for thinking Archimedes. I just don't know. I, if there is, I did not turn it up. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The basic principle, how does this odometer work? So you've got a chariot wheel. Odometer typically has a wheel of some kind that is rolling on the ground, and that's your your basic point of contact with the earth to get the 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 baseline measurement of distance. So you got a chariot wheel of a fixed size, two Roman feet in radius, which Vitruvius says uh, gives the wheel a circumference of approximately 12.5 Roman feet. So if the radius is two, that's four times pi, which is about 12.56. So when Vitruvius says 12.5 Roman feet, he's sort of approximating in his explanation. But anyway, each time the chariot wheel makes a full revolution, it will advance a cog wheel by one cog position, you know, one tooth advances. And the cog has the cog wheel has a fixed number of teeth, meaning that it will make a full revolution once the wheel has traveled one Roman mile. 
every time this cogwheel makes a full revolution, it will advance a gear that pushes a single small object like a pebble or a bead into a receptacle. And then at the end of the journey, you simply have a human count up the beans, you know, count up whatever the little uh, pebbles or beads or beans are to know how many miles you've gone. And I want to make uh, a note that this seemed interesting to me that this is the principle of using a system of gears as a type of analog computer, similar to the use of gears in the ancient astronomical computer known as the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, We discussed this in an episode we did sometime in the past couple of years. It might have been in the the Creature of the Gear episode about biological gears. Uh, But the idea that we often think of a, a gear as something that creates mechanical advantage, and it certainly does do that. But a gear can also manage ratios between numbers, like a gear can do math for you. And that's what it's doing in the case of this odometer. Yeah, I, I, I love these, these examples of the, from, from the ancient birth of the odometer or, or possible birth of the odometer in some of these, these instances, because it seems it's just kind of like we have the wheel turning on the road. And then it's a question of, could we put that wheel to use? Like the wheel is already, in a sense, marking the distance in its revolution. And, and in that, it's kind of like the heavens. It's like the sun. It's like the moon. It's like the, the, the cyclical movements all around us that mark the passage of time. Yeah, you just need to correlate something with like a fixed number of teeth that you can count to those pre-existing revolutions, and then you take those teeth to do some kind of work that will help you keep the count, like dropping a bean in a bucket or advancing a dial to a, on a fixed face that has a number printed on it. Yeah, and it and it you can imagine that to the in the ancient mindset, like you you would have realized if we could harness this, like this is better than than uh, than counting your steps. There is a regularity to this that uh, would be harder to achieve uh, through other means. Totally. So, so Vitruvius describes a machine roughly like that. Hero later describes a similar machine, but there are some interesting differences in how the two authors present their explication. For example, Vitruvius describes his odometer with fixed dimensions. The wheel is four Roman feet in diameter. The circumference is approximately 12.5 feet and so forth. And here I want to read a passage from Roby. Quote, Rather than providing a mathematical formula whereby the odometer could be adapted to any desirable or available wheel size, as Hero does for his own description of an odometer, Vitruvius avoids formulas and geometrical language by specifying the wheel diameter and circumference as fixed numbers. That is to say, the version of the odometer he gives his reader is presented as the exact device transmitted from his, quote, predecessors, not a jumping-off point for experimentation with the type of device. And she goes on to explain this as typical of the difference between Latin language technical literature from this period and Hellenistic technical literature. Works in Latin tended to be exact descriptions of existing devices rather than demonstrations of principles and scalable instructions for building new machines. Uh, the latter, the you know, the scalable instructions and explication of principles is more like what Hero of Alexandria presents. Instead of having fixed dimensions, his explanation is about how to apply the idea of an odometer to different scales and uses with, 
with the numerical figures being ratios rather than measurements. So Hero's goal was to represent these relationships between the different sizes of the wheels and the connected gears. And then to read one final passage from Roby, quote, Hero's description allows mechanical flexibility as well. He suggests how to extend the number of cogs in the odometer, which can radically enhance its measuring capacity. On the other hand, he notes that it is pointless to make an odometer that measures a greater distance than its vehicle could cover in a single day, as it is easiest to just start the count over each morning. <laughs> which I like. That's very practical. Uh, but it also it, it flags an interesting difference here. There are just different assumptions about the reader. Uh, the text in a more Hellenistic tradition, or as, as Hero does it, might be geared more toward a select audience of highly educated polymaths who would be expected to take the engineering principle and then vary it to their needs, whereas the Latin-Roman tradition is describing an exact device in a more accessible way that's easy to replicate but offers less deep understanding and flexibility. But I wanted to come back to a, a kind of a lingering question about Alexander's Bematists, whether they used a mechanical odometer or not. And the question is, which is actually more accurate? You might assume a mechanical odometer is more accurate, uh, but I've read some arguments that actually human pacers would be less prone to error over a long distance than a primitive mechanical device would be. Now, obviously, the best possible scenario would be like to have the odometer on a modern car, you know, something that is highly accurate, uh, very well calibrated, a highly accurate modern device. Uh, th that's going to give you the best reading. But obviously something built in the 4th century BCE would have significant enough inaccuracy in its measurements that this would cause problems over great distances. And so the idea is that any inaccurate measurement in a mechanical device would just build up and up over many, many miles on a great journey. Like if the circumference of your wheel is slightly too long over thousands of miles, it will start to significantly underestimate the distance traveled. Meanwhile, I think the idea at least is that human biobimatists, literally counting their steps, will also have inaccuracy, uh, maybe inaccuracy relative to some reference length of a single pace, but that inaccuracy will go both ways, steps that are too long and then steps that are too short, and those will average out over time. That's the argument, at least. And I see the logic here, and uh, I admit that I'm, I'm not a genius at statistics, so I could be wrong, but my reaction is that I think this could also be mistaken because it would tend to assume that the human pacer's inaccuracy will not be consistently biased either above or below whatever the reference pace length being used is. Uh, so I think this logic might work if you had like a group of a thousand people walking and then you had the, all of them ca count their steps and then you averaged all of those together. But if it was just a single person, I would tend to think that their personal count might be biased more in one direction or another. They would just tend to have longer than average or shorter than average steps and that even a pretty primitive machine would be better, but I don't know. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't quite know what to, to make of it because yeah, I can, I can see what they're getting at with the idea that some sort of a, a basic mechanical flaw in an ancient odometer device that you would just consistently get the wrong number and then that would build up over time. And then yeah, when, when it comes to the, uh, the the actual steps and the the counting of those steps by an individual or individuals, you'd have 
you know, a little a little in one direction, a little in another direction, but it would sort of even out. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to think about. I mean, I think it would be more likely to even out if you were talking about a group of people, like a large group of people all averaged together. Yeah. I don't know if that'd be the case for a single person. Anyway, whether or not they were using mechanical odometers, ancient Bimatists did a not-at-all-bad job of measuring different uh, distances between milestones, between cities, and it's possible they were helped in this task by devices like the ones described by Vitruvius and Hero, but ultimately... I think we don't know for sure if they use these devices or not. And if they did, we don't know for sure who invented these ancient odometers. It's, it's one of those questions, you know, there, there are many inventions where we just don't know where they came from. I, I wonder too, if it might've been a situation where they use both, where, where the, the, they're specialist in their field. So perhaps like specialists in other fields, they're using more than one method and then comparing the numbers and figuring out some sort of, um, more accurate measurement based on the two. Hmm. Yeah, that could be. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, it's really impressive that in the, what it's like the third or fourth century BCE, we've got people getting like really accurate uh, estimates of, of travel distances that are on the order of hundreds of miles. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, all of this is going on in the Greco-Roman world, but uh, as we've uh, partially alluded to already, there's there's also a history of the odometer in Chinese civilization as well. In particular, the device in question is the Li recording drum carriage. Now, this is sometimes attributed as an invention of Zhang Heng, who lived 78 through 139 CE. Uh, this is a, a Chinese polymath and court astronomer in the Eastern Han Dynasty. Uh, this is uh, an individual we've talked about before because there are a number of different inventions that are attributed to him, one of which was a, an early form of earthquake detection device. Hmm. Uh, he had a, an important role tending calendars and celestial events, aiding the emperor, um, who, of course, ruled at the mandate of heaven. So, you know, all, uh, maintaining the balance uh, between cosmos and civil life. And this is a period of time that's sometimes referred to as the golden age of Chinese history, four centuries of economic prosperity that saw the traffic of goods and ideas across the Silk Road. He was an inventor, a poet, and an early scientist. We have an older invention episode about the earthquake detection device, and I was looking back at some of our notes, and I'm reminded that uh, that you shared some of his poetry in that episode. Oh, I don't remember that now. Was it good poetry? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. Um, so he's credited with a number of inventions, innovations, and achievements. He wrote a treatise on mystical laws of the cosmos, which included the theory that the moon did not emit light but reflected the light of the sun. And he's also sometimes attributed as the inventor of the Lee recording drum carriage, uh, which again is this um, uh, this this odometer of sorts uh, in Chinese history. Now, it is worth noting that, that kind of like the situation with Hero and Archimedes, we have a very famous historical inventor here, and he, he's attributed with a number of inventions. And so I guess the, the, the question always lingers, is this a, an invention that this individual invented? Is it something that they described? It is, something, is it something that just ends up being attributed to them because the, the technology was known during that time or it's based on surviving records, etc.? Yeah, exactly. So I ended up looking at some of the writings of Joseph Needham, 
on this. Uh, so Needham lived 1900 through 1995. He was a British biochemist, historian of science, and sinologist who wrote rather extensively on the history of science and technology in China. Um, his second wife, uh, Lu Gives-Hin, was a Chinese historian and biochemist, and she was an important co-researcher and co-author in his work. So we're talking multiple volumes uh, that he wrote during his lifetime, uh, very, very much his life work. So before we get to the, the, the carriage itself, I thought we might stop to just consider roads in ancient China. Uh, so uh, Needham writes about roads in general in The Short Science and Civilization in China. And uh, he points out that they, they were quite comparable to the famous roads of the Romans. Both empires had extensive road systems that served as a means of logistically connecting their vast land holdings for travel and trade. Uh, as well as uh, you know, playing an important part is just in just communication through the empire. That's always something to keep in mind. Uh, the, the road is also a lane for communication. Now, both systems, the Roman and the Chinese, fell into long periods of decay after the third century CE. He points out, uh, though he, he writes that while the collapse of Roman roads had more of a fracturing effect. In China, natural and artificial waterways and some surviving mountain road systems enable these far-reaching routes of communication to remain open. Mm -hmm. He also points out something very interesting about these two independent systems that is this rather awe-inspiring and I thought really nicely written. And it also kind of ties into some of the stuff we talked about in our previous episode about uh, the Roman military, uh, the, the dethroned emperor series. Quote, should the Romans have ever succeeded in conquering the Parthians and the Persians, the two road systems might have met, perhaps somewhere west of Xinjiang, but this was not to be. The octopus-like arms expanded independently, each in a world of its own, their builders troubled only occasionally by the vaguest rumors of another system too far away to matter. Xinjiang, by the way, is in northwest China. Uh, that's where he's talking about here. Uh, so, yeah, this is such a – I love this quote because it's just a, a, imagining these two independent uh, road systems like, like, like octopuses, uh, each doing their own thing. And if, uh, you know, world history had gone a different way, there could have been a situation where they met. Uh, it's it's crazy to, to think about like like roads. I've often thought about you know you, you encounter a road and where does that road end? You know that basically goes. It's not infinite, but uh, you can you, you, it stretches on for such a great distance. And to imagine these two vast systems, uh, almost but not quite, coming together. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I don't know if if you've ever uh, uh, played around with this to to see like how far one can drive on a given continent or on connected continents. Like at what point do things seem to break down and yeah. you would have to find some other route to connect with another road? And I know when you get into Eurasia and Africa like there are some pretty long travels by road that are okay, that are possible today. The the road is not going to be necessarily be great the whole way, but uh, you can do quite a lot. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So anyway, Needham points out that with the uh, odometer or the weigh measure, 
it's it's a pretty simple proposition from a mechanical standpoint. If you have the wheel already, and you have road, and you have if you have roads, you have wheels. Then all it is is quote a system of toothed wheels constituting a reduction gear train, so that one or more pins revolve slowly, releasing catches at predetermined intervals, and in the case of uh, this invention, striking drums or gongs. Huh. So. The Lee recording drum carriage, what is a Lee? A Lee is the traditional Chinese measure of distance, today standardized at 500 meters or 1,640 feet. But as with the mile in Western traditions, historically there's some drift over exactly how far it is supposed to be. But it's standardized today and would have been standardized under different rules and different dynasties. Yeah, standardization of measures does seem like such an important part of this too because I when I kept thinking about the idea of uh, of a bimatist potentially trying to measure distance with paces I'm like what is so you've got to have something that's like a reference pace right if you say something is x number of paces long you've got to either know how much your pace typically relates to a standard measure like a mile or you've got to be using your paces as some kind of literal standard measure like people would know what that number meant yeah yeah it's a, yeah the, the the history of, of measurements alone would be something interesting to come back to because of course you get into use of various parts of the human body uh, to to form your base measurements uh, the creation of tools and uh, and certainly when you're getting into weights for goods and trade like some of our oldest data and oldest examples are all related to that but then when you start thinking about these larger measurements like the measurement between you know the the fort and the frontier that sort of thing like you like you, you can't just count you, you can't just have someone and go out there with essentially a ruler and say, all right, start measuring it off. Like you've got to have some other system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so Needham gets more into, uh, into the, the subject of the Lee, uh, the Lee measuring card here in Science and Civilization in China, Volume 4, Physics and Physical Technology, Part 2, Mechanical Engineering. <laughs> um, and yeah, it gets into the, the nature and origins of the Lee recording drum carriage. He cites several sources and, pose, and some of these are sources that go into more detail. Others just kind of mention it in passing and points out that, that many of the mentions of the carriage, yeah, they don't actually describe the mechanism employed. In at least one case, it shows up as a math problem. It's uh, something along the lines of, if the, the Lee recording drum carriage were to travel between this city and this city, how many times would the gong uh, sound? That sort of thing. The concept seems to date back to the Han Dynasty, and this is where the attribution to Zhang Heng seems to come into play. But when the carriage is described, it's generally described as a carriage drawn by four horses, and it works based on multiple cogged wheels, some vertical and some horizontal, uh, you know, all, of course, uh, much like the, the earlier example in the Greco-Roman traditions we were discussing, you know, it's tied to the movement of the wheels. In the simpler version of this, um, of this carriage, it's said that there is a wooden man in the carriage who is mechanically made to strike a drum with the passage of each Lee. <laughs> so the wheels are turning, the cogs are turning, there's a mechanical wooden man inside who, like a, like a music box, he is going to mechanically strike a drum, in this case, every time one Lee has passed. Uh, beat that, Vitruvius. You did not have a wooden man, did you? 
Later, a more complex version is described as being two stories in height. So so it's a, a carriage that has two stories, and each story has its own wooden figure. The lower figure strikes a drum every lee, while the higher figure rings a bell every ten lee. Okay, so one difference that occurs to me here is this would still, if it's keeping track of the distance uh, in an accurate way, but doing so by making a sound instead of by, say, accumulating uh, uh, pebbles or, or beads in a container, it's something that you would, to some extent, need to continuously keep track of as you're traveling. Like, it would still require effortful engagement of the memory by somebody doing the traveling, right? That's right. That's based on on my reading here of Needham. I don't think there's any indication that it was spitting out uh, like you know balls or or, or or pebbles that could then be counted later, or that it was anyway recording how many lees it passed. It was just a uh, you know a, a ringing of a bell or the, the 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 striking of a drum based on the intervals traveled, which would still be useful, but would require more work than uh, or at least work spread out over a longer period of time rather than say like a single counting activity in between travel uh, segments. And in this, we get into one of the the big questions about the Lee recording drum carriage, and that is, was this a device that was at all originally intended to measure distances? Uh, Hmm. Or was it it more about music? Was it more about novelty? Uh, Why was the technology employed? So again, this, this, these writings are typically revolving around the Han period or perhaps a little earlier, but the Lee measuring drum carriage was not known as such until later. And Needham discusses that this might mean that the invention was, in fact, more expressly for musical performance rather than the measurement of distances. A- again, at least during this time period. It may have, this may have changed later when someone realized, oh yeah, we can just count uh, how many strikes of the drum, we can count how many rings of the bell, and then that's data that could prove useful. Hmm. But he stresses that, you know, th- these are still interconnect- interconnected possibilities. Um, and if you're, if you're asking, well, why would they do that? Like, why build a carriage like this? And why does it remain something other than just like a one-time novelty? Like, why is it written about so much? And he points out that music, of course, is often part of a procession. And he stresses that, uh, quote, carriages for musicians, whether mechanized or not, survived in imperial processions through many subsequent dynasties. So the idea here is that the mechanical version uh, here develops from non-mechanical carriages with human musicians inside them. Imperial fleets of vehicles, as he refers to them, would have likely included palace officials and so forth, but also entertainers, musicians. So as everyone's traveling down the road, there's music. And at some point, someone says, hey, we could could build some gears. We could make a mechanical musical man inside one of the carriages. Uh, Putting those flesh musicians out of the job. Well, (laughs) I don't know if they'd be completely out of the job because, you know, the the mechanical musicians can only do so much here. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, for for a modern comparison, we might think of, of a parade float as a as a counterpart to something like this. It does sound a lot like a parade float. It would have been, according to one account, painted red and decorated with flowers and birds. It's described as being escorted by 18 men, uh, and there would have been a phoenix-headed carriage pole on it. 
So this was not clearly not something that was like a Google Maps vehicle that was out there just to perform a task. It also uh, it said that it looked marvelous. It's a joyous vehicle. And once more, Needham stresses that we don't know for sure if it was ever used by cartographers. Uh, it's possible that, that later on cartographers may make use of the data that could be provided by this, but we're not sure. Interesting. So Needham points out that Hero's description of the hedometer did not claim it as a new invention. He mentions Vitruvius and then mentions that after Hero Vitruvius, the odometer appears in Western Europe during the 15th century. So it's, it's kind of not really on the Western European radar for a long period of time or doesn't seem to be based on surviving histories. And then it reemerges. Quote, the pattern is therefore the same as that which we have repeatedly met with, i.e. Greek antecedents paralleled or followed by followed at short distance by Chinese developments, which continue throughout the medieval period, and then a reawakening of the subject in Europe. So in this, he's touching on something that was kind of a career-spanning question for him. Uh, it's often referred to as the Needham question. And that the, the question is basically, why didn't China beat Europe to the scientific revolution? Uh, he spent a fair amount of his work thinking over this and looking to answers in Chinese social institutions and more. Uh, though as uh, I was reading that sinologist uh, Nathan uh, Sivan, who would have been, a, I think at times, a collaborator with Needham, pointed out that you know, the whole thing is basically a why didn't X happen in history question, which by some estimates is, is less than a fruitful enterprise. You know, you get into all sorts of complex butterfly wing flapping concerns when you start asking questions like that. They can be kind of nifty head scratchers, but perhaps they are not the, the best exercise for an historian. Uh, but at any rate, the Needham question, you see it mentioned a lot in discussions of, of uh, the history of Chinese science. Now, I do want to note uh, in, in reading about all this, uh, was, I also read some material from Needham about another interesting wheeled vehicle uh, in Chinese history, and that is the south-pointing chariot. Uh, but that's one we're going to have to come back to. But yeah, the idea of, of a chariot with another mechanical man on it, but this mechanical man always points south. Ominous. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So we're not gonna we're not gonna go through the exhaustive history of the of the odometer in uh, in recent centuries, but I thought it, it might be useful to point out a few different later innovations that kind of bring us up to the modern odometer. Um, there's Pascal's calculator. This would have been uh, uh, an invention uh, or an innovation by Blaise Pascal. Uh, this was 1645, not an odometer per se, but it was a computation mechanism that entailed rotating toothed gears, and much like a modern odometer, one complete cycle of one gear caused the movement of the next gear. Okay, so this would have been taking the same principle by which the uh, the ancient odometer worked, but applying it to general calculation rather than just the movement of a vehicle wheel. Right. Now, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, we also see Thomas Savory's nautical odometer. Uh, Savory's most famous invention uh, was the steam engine, but he also devised a nautical odometer. I actually couldn't find out much about this, so I don't know. I'm going to have to come back to this one in the future uh, because I, I was curious on how exactly it would have functioned. Oh, interesting. Suppo yeah, supposedly there was a patent, so it seems like I should be able to find that, that patent somewhere. Uh, so I don't know. I'll have to come back to that one. Uh, but this is a fun part because our old friend Ben Franklin also enters the fray here <laughs> when it comes to the odometer. 
Uh, he's come up in more than one invention conversation, I believe. So uh, what, what was his take? So in 1775, he was serving as postmaster general for the British. Uh, previously, he had been postmaster of Philadelphia, and he wanted more data on the shortest routes for mail delivery. Uh, so he basically devised a simple odometer to attach to his own carriage, and uh, and this will for this reason you'll sometimes see especially some online sources saying Ben Franklin invented the odometer. Uh, well, no, yeah, it's not accurate in the least to say Ben Franklin invented the odometer. You could say he invented an odometer. Uh, he certainly whipped one up on the fly here. It seems so. Every four hundred revolutions, it would register a mile, and the results were apparently pretty accurate based on uh, what I was reading here. So at any rate, he was able to to to, to use the data. Uh, to to figure out which route was best for mail delivery. Now, one thing I know I saw reference to on the internet, and I didn't know what to make of this, was the idea of a uh, a Mormon odometer. Yeah, this was one that yeah that came up for me as well. The um, the rodometer uh, from Clayton and Pratt. Uh, this would have been 1847. They were pioneers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and they apparently crafted a simple odometer to measure how far a wagon train had traveled. Um, so that's, it's uh, interesting. Again, it's, we're getting into this area where it sounds like people would find themselves in situations where they could really use an odometer. And since the knowledge was, was known, you could create one. You couldn't go to the store and buy one, but the principles were out there. Uh, the principles were part of, 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 of the, the technological canon. So you could draw on that and make yourself a functional odometer. In 1895, Curtis H. Veter uh, came up with a bicycle-mounted odometer, the cyclometer. And then in 1903, we have the Warner Autometer, which uh, I think like the, the advertised versions of this, this was like an actual product. It was a combined odometer, speedometer, and clock, but it made use of magnetism uh, as mm. opposed to uh, just pure gear work. Uh, so, like, those are some of the, the big, more re, uh, big innovations in the odometer in recent centuries. And, uh, yeah, t- today the odometer, again, is something we tend to just take for granted or we don't even read it. It just sort of clicks by there. Maybe we check in on it every, you know, however many thousands of miles. I guess it varies. Some people are probably more, uh, more into keeping a close eye on their odometer or you have to for work, obviously. Uh, I think about seeing those surveyors who have the wheel they use, the surveyor's oh, wheel. Yeah. The yeah. surveyor's wheel, of course. I didn't think about that. That's an obvious uh, um, uh, innovation to compare to some of these discussions of the odometer, like harnessing the power of the wheel for measurement. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Perhaps you have uh, particular thoughts about the odometer, its ancient history, its recent history, or or you know our modern use of the technology. Uh, write in. We would love to hear from you. As a reminder, our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about the strange film. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.